You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Okay, so today I'm interviewing a cloud enterprise architect at Micron Technology and a very good friend of mine, Jane Michelli. Hi, Jane. Hi, how are you? I'm hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm suffering with allergies, but uh, definitely hanging in there. <laughs> so tell me, Jane, you and I, uh, we go back a ways, but what's what's your background? Um, I started off my career doing manual and automated testing in manufacturing software at Rockwell Automation for five years or so. Um, and then when I was finishing my master's degree, HP had recruited me out to Boise and I worked a little bit in firmware, um, mostly on the QA side, same with bodybuilding.com, even moving to the cloud for the first time, I was very much a QA engineer. And so, um, a large portion of my career comes from that lens where I started doing some programming, realized I didn't like it that much. And all of the other activities around it were more interesting and novel, like, you know, moving from SVN to Git or even older technologies where I don't want to label <laughs> and expose how old I am. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that led to building environment management and learning how to um, package up code and some of the other interesting activities, which lended itself very much to. Um, being a cloud SRE, which is probably one of the more satisfying jobs. Why do you find that so satisfying, being an SRE? I think there's still a little mystery around it. Um, especially on the cloud side, it's it's just that such little tweaks to a system can have drastic impacts that you wouldn't otherwise think. Like, I can write a new feature that has a new drop-down box that enables a new functionality where we can collect some more data on people. That's cool. Um, but changing even one character in a file that could change sizes of instances across tens of thousands of them and save your company millions is extremely satisfying. It's a small change. has a very large impact. So are you, do you feel like in 10 years we're all going to be SRE, like that's the future of DevOps? Yeah, I'm I'm starting to see quite a <laughs> bit more of that. And it's not even just development and operations, right? We're starting to see, um, you know, DevSecOps. And what's next for that? There's also um, a bit of ownership and self-governing and trying to make some better decisions just as yourself. There's um, a little bit of architecture decisions that you're making, like, it's it's changing from this very siloed, you have specific purposes to do things to everybody doing a little bit of everything. If I want to extrapolate that out. So many more glamorous topics that, that we could have talked about. And yes. no one really likes disasters. We don't even like talking about it. I cannot wait to, to sweep my latest mistake underneath the rug. So why why that topic? You're the one that thought of it. It, it came from another talk about uh, stories from 
you know, really the trenches called battle wounds uh, that ranged from things that you can't control and the unexpected that you thought would be impossible to the self-inflicted ones, the things that we didn't prioritize that ended up biting us in the butt later on. And all the questions in the talk were, since, you know, the, the strategy to win all of them is to having really good, honest, solid retrospectives is, is, a, is a lot of specific questions. And, okay, you say that you use neutral language, but how do you do that? You say that it's blameless, but somebody's always at fault, right? And even you talk about retrospectives and postmortems. Are they really detailed minute by minute? Could they? How many pages are they? Like, what, what are we talking about here? I'm like, wow, we have a lot of specifics and logistics to talk about how to do these retrospectives. So I think you're you're not going to get a lot of argument from most people that it's important for us to be honest and open, and that means a blameless retrospective. I think by and large, especially at the engineer and technician level, people agree with that. But you're saying, hey, listen, we we really need more information on how to make how to make these postmortems effective. How do we use neutral language? Are they yeah. detailed enough? Well, it's the theoretically, of course, I'm going to try and always expect the best. And theoretically, of course, it's going to be blameless. But and there's always the but. Yeah, but what does that really look like? <laughs> there's always a but. <laughs> <laughs> I know what shocked me was um, two things. First off, that that the amount of time we spend in a postmortem on reconstructing the timeline I mean, it yeah. seems very tedious. We we should, probably should have taken that care of that ahead of the meeting. Why do we spend so much time, half the meeting or even more, putting together a timeline? Well, and if you're not putting it together, at least walking through it, um, things I've seen in the past is you start a document and you send it out so each of the teams can add information on the UTC time code that they knew that happened so we can start correlating it all together and it it's tedious and then walking through it and talking through it is the majority of the meeting because we want to focus the conversation in the frame of the data and what happened in terms of outcomes rather than um the feelings the emotion the well if they would have just done this shoulda woulda coulda <laughs> right if <laughs> Which, the database guys would have been competent at their job Right. <laughs> right. Or, or if the, you know, so-and-so needs to get retrained. And if your action is retrain so-and-so, you probably didn't have a really good solid retrospective because what around that caused you to put somebody who wasn't well-trained in that situation? Or are we really assuming that they had all the knowledge that they could at the time at the training and we still had this particular problem? What else, what external factors are we looking at? that caused us to get in this situation? Because it's never just one person. So that's interesting. <coughs> so in, <coughs> excuse me, in a retrospective, if the outcome, the action item is, uh, the DBAs need more training, what does that tell you? Uh, I think it means that we didn't really dig deep enough, but we did find a significant contributing factor, or at least one that we can blame because it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it nice when we can pass a hot potato on to another team well and that's <laughs> i mean it's awesome that we have those cognitive biases to try and find the simplest path so that we don't have to spend the time to reflect and think hard and maybe think that maybe we might personally have also done something wrong or made a decision that didn't quite pan out and so it's easier to blame than it is to 
to look at it holistically in terms of a system about what happened. I know, and you and I, we, we talked about some disasters that have happened. Uh, the 1996 Mount Everest disaster, Chernobyl. Um, you and I have both been in the great position of deleting production data, right? Yes, yes. Oh yeah, that's, that's something you don't recover from. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a badge of honor. We wear it with courage, you know, pride. <laughs> so why why don't we just stop it? I mean, I know when something goes wrong, my manager instincts are who screwed up and how can I punish them? How can right. I make them make them think twice before they act so carelessly next time? Well, and if I, you didn't think that, stop. your manager has certainly asked that question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why do we not stop there? Why is blame so, I guess... It feels good, but maybe ineffective. Well, say we do fire that person and we've changed no other var variables around training or onboarding or processes or controls to production or just team dynamics that we hire somebody else to make the exact same mistake. What have we really solved if we just fire that bad apple? Uh, probably nothing. I mean, we're we're bound to get the same problem again. And of course, it might be six months down the road. And then we stop making as many changes or improvements because we don't want to make any mistakes because we don't want to get fired. And you come to a place where you're not really doing what's best for probably the business. So in, in a way, when we kind of, they tell stories at Facebook about, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg walking around with coffee when when the, the you know when there's an outage and he's he tries to be supportive and there's no finger pointing happening and it's pretty vivid so when we when we when managers tend to tighten up and down comes to hammer on the bad team or the bad person what's the cycle that kind of kicks off there Ooh, well that starts from a place of I don't think my team's doing the right thing or I don't trust them and therefore should I get in there I could do better. Mm. Whereas servant leadership, getting people coffee, letting them do the work that they need to do and focus on that, that's trust. Yeah. That's building great teams. Which I so, think sort of answers the question. Right. And in every action we take can either have positive or negative impacts. And if if I come down like a hammer on this one poor guy that ran this command, um next time I mean, that whole team's going to be much less responsive and much less transparent. And the odds of that exact same problem or something like it happening again are quite high um, because no one likes to get punished. Right. Well, and then we won't even actually talk about what the real problem was because we're so busy covering our butt or changing right. the narrative in such a way where it doesn't necessarily make me look bad. Right. That's And that's that's interesting because... We see some companies out there like Etsy, um, like Amazon, um, Microsoft, and some others. They do blameless postmortems, and they really care about language. Uh, for instance, Etsy doesn't allow people to use things like, you know, should have, could have, or would have. Like, I should have done this, or looking back on it, if I would have done this, you know, that whole chain of events wouldn't have happened. I was really stupid to run that command without checking first. Right. Why don't we allow that kind of language? Um, I think by and large, I don't know that we we really have had good training or hold ourselves accountable to having 
good relationship communication. It's one of the things that I think I learned for the first time as part of marriage counseling is <laughs> crucial conversations or fierce conversations. Let's take the inflammatory, distracting information out of the point that we're trying to get across and have a real conversation about that. Where are you coming from the place of curiosity or that you're assuming that the person that you're talking to is also trying to do the best thing? So you, you assume good intentions. You don't assume incompetence. You don't assume this person woke up in the morning saying, I'm going to wipe out that database table today. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wakes up wanting to do those things. And, and you mentioned um, going through the timeline. Usually what we come up with, a lot of the action items have to do with the fog of war. Isn't that right? Much like any best laid battle plans, they go out the window as soon as you're in the heat of everything. What did you know at the time? Why did you make that specific decision? How did you know this other thing was having a problem? I mean, a lot of times you don't. We talk about what we didn't know. But sometimes you knew something that you didn't think that would be in the playbook that would allow you to jump like 20 steps to get to a resolution. And that that detailed timeline is is really the core of what that retrospective is. That's right down in paper what you can go back and analyze. Hmm. That's really interesting. And so your background is you're a site, rel site reliability engineer and SRE, right? Yeah, um, just like <laughs> a lot of DevOps related people. I um, came up through manual and automated testing and then worked a bit in software and, and had learned very much that I was distracted by all the other interesting things that were not writing software, like the source control change from SVN to get, um, or even older tools that I won't age myself with. <laughs> <laughs> and and it turns out that that those very supporting activities are also very DevOpsy, and is what DevOps is now today, where you can write scripts to do migrations of a code base from one particular tool to another, which led to being a SRE at HP at some point, you know, doing build and environment management and cloud manager. And now we have a different perspective of what retrospectives look like and, and what the impact is. Because it was very clear in a waterfall method in QA, you were always blamed whenever anything went wrong. And if something went right, well, you didn't get the credit for it because you never wrote the software. <laughs> so we run into it's like, the same it's like thing. Being a, it's a lot like being a goalie in soccer. You're, you're, no one notices you until that ball goes into the net. And it's like, what did you do, Jane? Yeah. How did you not catch that button? How did you not click and test this particular thing in this one browser that caused us to lose all of this customer base? And you're just like, whoa. But the same thing is true for operations. Um, a lot of times, you know, speaking from the past, they are also the unsung heroes of the developers that didn't clean up their memory er errors. And so you have operations people that are on call that are just restarting things because that's how you deal with it. And so you see a different impact on um, and feel pain that you would choose different decisions if you had control over your own destiny. Right. So we, we look back on these disasters and we think, if I would have done this, then this whole chain of events wouldn't have happened. But that's that's false reasoning. It, it, it assumes things are dominoes, that it's a linear path. But a lot of times these are a bunch of different factors together. This may be a one-time only event. It's usually not just one person making one mistake. 
Usually not. Yes. Usually not. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting. To, that's one of the things I love best about the SRE movement is the fact that there's an error budget. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it's a balance. We acknowledge and agree ahead of time that there's going to be some amount of not having uptime, whether that's an SLA or an SLO, but let's talk about those expectations and set them ahead of time. You want some new features, bear in mind, there might be 1% of the time that will be down because of some mistake that we've made. Not that we're trying to make a mistake, just that there will be something. Right. So, I mean, that's, so we, we say with the SRE movement, a mistakes going are going to happen. Downtime is going to happen. The only question is how much and we yeah. budget for it. So let's say I'm a stakeholder and I want six nines of availability. What does that mean for the it project? means that you are probably not going to get any enhancements or new features whatsoever. Really? With six <laughs> nines? Yeah. But I, I mean, I'm the one paying the bills here and, and I want to have these new marketing features out in a month and I want it to be up 100% of the time. What's wrong with that? Um, change to the system means that there's a risk that it'll go down. That's not just guarantee that it will, bear in mind, you can pay a lot of money around it. But in the end, these are very complex systems. Yeah, and, and, and you and I talked about that, that um, accidents and mistakes, it, it's an emergent feature. It's going to happen and it's downtime will happen as a natural consequence of working with complex systems. And I, I love the fact that the SRA movement says, because there's always that conflict between uh, stability and then velocity, like change. You right. Know, that's that's the heart of the DevOps movement. And the SRA movement brings those arguments between the operations team and the stakeholder and the development team. It brings them out in the open to say, you can have your change, but it's going to require more risk. Yeah, for sure. And I love the ownership that's in it. At least we're setting that expectation up front rather than trying to mitigate and apologize and make up for a mistake that has happened that you wouldn't have been able to control otherwise. Yeah, so many times there's just unrealistic expectations. Um, and these are unspoken. They're implicit. They're not explicit. So it causes trouble beneath the surface because the stakeholders feel disappointed. Their features aren't going out at the rate they want and they're creaky and um, everyone's unhappy. Right. And so then the focus starts shifting away from metrics, number of features, lead time to outcomes. The outcome is my customer base is happy that I'm depending on you for and we have appropriate uptime. And we can make decisions based on data that if there has to be, for some reason, a very short downtime while we fail over to a new system to do some upgrades, we know that, say, traffic is here the lowest, and you're probably not even going to have a customer that realizes it. Is that okay? Is that the amount of time we can use as part of our budget as well? So it's, mm. it's really focusing the conversation in a more positive manner rather than um, saying yes to the impossible and then mit mitigating and saying apologies for not getting there. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, it's, it <laughs> seems to be, <laughs> it, it's just, that's why one of the reasons why you and I found this so interesting is because a lot of times these mistakes happen and either there's a big old hammer that comes out 
or we try to pretending that it was some other team's fault or that it, there was no incident. There was no outage, right? What outage? And we just kind of let it let it pass. Oh, you mean we gaslight our customers? That, that's probably <laughs> totally. what would be considered unhealthy behavior. <laughs> <laughs> there was no. These are not the droids you're looking for, right? <laughs> but we we've seen that, and that's why, like like when we asked those hundred people or so in the audience, we said, "How many of you have a a, a blameless post mortem process, or a post mortem process?" We had like five people raise their hand. Yeah, you know and what's then, even crazier? But let's well, just back up a minute. Yes. The fact that even a hundred people showed up to this talk. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting half the half the group would have a postmortem process of some sort, right? Right. Right. But it ends up like maybe a couple people, probably one or two companies, you know, or, has a blameless postmortem. Or they say that they do, but the people who are answering the question very much didn't feel like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So you have this huge opportunity for learning that we're just we're we're missing, um, right? Guaranteeing this kind of negative cycle of blame, recrimination, you know, fear, all those negative things. Uh, at the very end, we said, you know, I guarantee you, you all have a postmortem process. Everyone knows when there's a problem, but it's it's a crappy one. Your, your process is informal and based on rumor and innuendo, and it it doesn't lead to improving your your enterprise. Or building trust within the organization, which is really that key piece about transparency and blameless postmortems to actually address the more systemic issues rather than the perceived people issues. Because you know that you've got a problem when somebody can joke, oh, there's Jane again, deleting data. Of course right. it was Jane. What a cowboy. That Jane. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's it's what about how do we deal with the the managers and the people that are very set on? I want to know a name and I want to know how this is not going to happen next time. Like, how do you say how do you count on an argument that, listen, if we make this postmortem blameless, that means lack of accountability? Um, yeah, I think it's a fair amount of education that needs to happen. And that's not always easy to do to manage up. So I certainly encourage managers to look into what the alternative, but I mean, it really comes down to, do you want me to fix the issues or do you want me to fire this person, hire somebody else who will make the same mistake? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, right? Do you want to solve it? Or do we want to run this into it again in three to six months? And you and I talked about the fact that blameless postmortems, we didn't invent them in the IT industry. It it was invented in healthcare and aviation. Yeah. I mean, those are two industries where you'd want to have darn near 100% availability. Lives are dependent on those. Yeah, they are. It's it's funny. One of the it was a car or a plane crash in uh, my hometown of Portland back in the early 1970s. And that's one of the things that led to a blameless postmortem in the aviation industry. Uh, because they found that if we shift from, you know, making sure that, you know, blaming the, punishing the innocent kind of a thing to investigating why that individual, why that pilot made that decision, usually due to incomplete or incorrect data, you know, you, yeah, that's the only way we can pre really prevent these problems from happening in the future. It's not easy to fix people, but you can fix the systems and processes to better, you know, support those people. 
or not even support, but maybe we start phrasing it as let's start setting people up for success. Yeah, right. <laughs> Rather than keeping a system the way that it is and set up for failure, which by having a postmortem, you start identifying the fact that you had a failure to begin with means that there's something that we can go and address and fix, which of course leads to outcomes of postmortems or retrospectives. So let's say that it was like Frank, um, the, data, the DBA that, that removed the schema or brought down a production system. Um, what, I guess, does it mean that Frank and the DBAs are off the hook with a blameless uh, postmortem that, that they don't have to lift a finger and there's no form of accountability at all? Well, I guess we got to start asking some more questions about what exactly was happening at the time. Was there an extra load on the system? What was the feature that he was trying to accomplish? I assume he didn't come to work driving in his car thinking, you know, it would be fun today. <laughs> Cause outage. Right. So he's trying to I feel accomplish. Like I need more drama in my life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it got a little boring. <laughs> I slept too many nights in a row. Let's put some sriracha on this Wednesday and bring down <laughs> half of the West Coast. <laughs> well, it's interesting that that um, Etsy had some of the best, like the best blog article I've ever seen on the subject. And it, John Allspaw, back when he worked there, he said that instead of punishing engineers, we we give them, they basically put the spotlight on them. They're the ones that have to write up that postmortem and, and the written report and to come up with the, the solutions so that they're very much on the hook for making the company safer and more resilient. Um, so it's enabling the people who made the mistakes to be the experts on helping the rest of the organization not to repeat those same problems down right. the road. Yeah. And how to set up um, themselves in the future, even for setting up for success, if you need to tie it to a personal need, you want to be successful in your role in the future. So. Let's talk about the things that you need to make yourself successful. And postmodems are also useful for somebody who's trying to push out a lot of features but don't realize the impact of what a particular downtime would be for a certain component of the system. And that's when you start talking about what the customer impact was because now you can make some better decisions that's the best for everybody as a system, both your company and whatever customers, either internal or external, what that might look like. Because I certainly um, have done a lot of things without realizing what the impact was to somebody else by just not communicating or setting expectations or even finding a window in which I could do that thing that we needed to do that would be have the least amount of impact on our customers. So it's it's really a communication discussion. Mm. Yeah, getting back to that, that kind of the crucial conversations point you mentioned earlier. You know, I uh, really yeah. like that book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. I agree with you. Uh, you know, and one of the things you found like a great postmortem example um, in that GitLab one back from 2017, I think it was in February. Yeah, you know, that was about the time where we were struggling to understand what, um, how we could improve ours since it seemed like we were coming up with a, we'll just don't do that in the future and call the DBA next time. And maybe we should give you some more training. And it seemed like they just weren't going anywhere. And so even as a group, we're feeling like, man, I don't even want to talk about this anymore. But it 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 was 
an outage that GitLab had that was um, very much well known in the news and it was posted all over social media. And then they post their postmortem and you read through it and you're like, oh yeah, that exact same stuff happens at my company. What are you guys doing? Wow, that's a lot of amazing stuff that you really <laughs> thoroughly dug through. How did you even get to that point? And so we started passing around excellent postmortem such as this one and like there's 15 mitigation steps that they could do different there's 15 action items for how they might prevent it like where did these people come from that they so meticulously dug this apart without saying hey this engineer ran this one line and shouldn't have done that because it could have very easily stopped there and it was so detailed as far as the timeline you know and and um, i love the action items it was what what makes for a good action item, by the way? Um, ones that I found were around what knowledge can we take away from this or what additional knowledge do we need to make better decisions? And that comes right down to telemetry, logging, monitoring, alerting. Are we looking at the right things? Are we logging at the right things? Are we getting alerted at this point where there seems to be a correlation that if we hit 80%, then the system falls over? Maybe we should start alerting at like 75 and see if there's something we can do before then or some automation. And, and, and take it really as an iterative approach. Okay, so this one thing happens a quarter. What are some of the leading events that led up to that cool let's put in some monitoring to figure out why and what processes are running just as our cpu is spiking is it a traffic oh this other dependency that has an update once a quarter starts having problems and before you know it you've unraveled this thing that now you can do differently and not have that um, downtime however it it can take a while to get to that point but as long as you're starting to unravel the onion then you eventually get there that's interesting. So, and that's, that kind of comes across when you're trying to reconstruct things with the timeline. You figure out, wow, we're really not clear in the exact order of events. Right. Or, so, or, or those very mysterious intermittent things. But we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know anything when it does happen. And we don't know how to prevent it for the next time it happens. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you start with that one? So a lot of times then some of the most useful action items we can come up with is um, things around dashboarding, telemetry, alerts, making sure that our alerts are appropriate. Does every single event need to have a postmortem? I don't know. I'm often on the fence about this one, but I don't think so. And and what about with, with these postmortems? Um, if I have a postmortem that's got a hundred action items, all priority one, what's the problem there? Well, how well has it worked out for you to have only all priority one items? I mean, and I'm sure all of us get this every day in our job. Right. Your number one priority is this, and then you have your dotted line person. Your number one priority is this, and your customer, your number one priority is this, and they're not necessarily the same thing, or in a lot of times not even really related, but they're all beating at your time. So. Um, we really have to have that priority. So where am I most effective? Where are we going to get the biggest bang for our buck as a holistic system? We got to start thinking about that as teams as well. What is the biggest bang for our buck? There should only be one. Yeah. Just one top priority. 
it's interesting google in the sre handbook which i mean i love that book so much um but it mentioned that a general rule they have is that any remediation item should be able to be done in about 30 days and they close out ones that are older than that so it has to be kind of short term and actionable and measurable kind of follow that that smart criteria yeah, whether it be a new feature or an enhancement or something you just need to rip out of the system that you should have a while ago because now it's introducing failure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, uh, Ben Trainer, um, Google's SRE guru, he, he mentioned that any postmortem without an action item has to come across his desk for approval. And he, he personally reviews any exceptions to that. So <laughs> I'm kind of curious, does he talk about exactly what those exceptions are? <laughs> I know. I, I think just the fact that managers are aware of these of of the, the postmortem reports and they're they're looking at these action items is is a big deal. Yeah, that's true. I think getting oh. that that attention is a good thing. Well, I, I, I know that there's a lot of managers that look for names in them. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Let's build that blame base. Yeah. I want to know how many times Fred shows up in this one. So why why it, it, Fred <laughs> the stupid Fred <laughs> caused so many outages? Let's fire Fred and our reliability go up 100. <laughs> percent I'm I'm sorry if there's anybody who's listening who's named Fred. That's not my intention. <laughs> Fred, you, yeah, you need to be better at your job. <laughs> <laughs> So why why does it necessary for us to have a facilitator there? I mean, is this a playground with the postmortem? Oh, much like a marriage counselor, you need a third party to facilitate the discussion that you know you need to have. And typically, these are very emotionally charged situations if you haven't gotten through the practice of discussing and having them, because there's a lot of ups and downs and you're thinking about when the next time somebody's going to mention your name and what you did next. And so to have somebody who goes through the process and keeps everybody accountable to having neutral language, especially, you know, with engineers that beat up on themselves. Well, if I just would have, should have, could have, this other thing wouldn't have happened. And, and a lot of times you'll see that, the engineers are the worst on themselves, at least when they feel safe Isn't enough to funny? talk about it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like we're the first ones to throw ourselves on a sword. Well, you know, this is, I should have done this. I should have known better. Right. I'm just being punished for. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so who, who needs, I mean, I've heard of just recently, in fact, we talked about that, that data center outage um, where there was a, a valve that failed open and, so oh, no, you need to tell the story. Should I tell the story? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> so there was a data center not too far from where I live, and I'm not allowed to tell any other details, but I had one of the electricians working there show me a picture on his phone and it had 18 inches of water in this brand new data center just sitting there on the floor. I said, oh, that doesn't look good. He's like, it's not. They're having to take this data center they've been working on since January and basically start over. Um, in mid-May, they were cutting over from their backup power to city power. And unfortunately, the, the main 12-inch in diameter water pipe, uh, there's a valve that's supposed to fail closed. It failed open. Within like 20 minutes, all their water reservoirs overflowed, and suddenly you have hundreds of thousands of gallons of water 
in a brand new data center, never even turned on. So they have to start over. They're they're stripping it down to studs, cleaning everything out, um, and the the cost just to the with the electrical switches involved is about almost a billion dollars. So we're talking about a you know multi billion dollar failure. And I I said to my friend, this is this is a problem. I mean, I'm doing this presentation with Jane on how people are never the root cause, right? But the way you've described it, Kevin, that subcontractor, is completely at fault because he should have checked that valve. And then I, I talked a little more to my friend, and he said, yeah, we've been working some pretty long hours. Well, how, how long of hours? Uh, around 70, 80-hour weeks for the last, well, last five or six months. Whew. Yeah. He says the best people on our team are walking around like zombies. I mean, just we can hardly we can hardly put one foot in front of the other. So that right there is like, aha, that's a second story. And now let's dig a little bit deeper. Why are you working these long hours? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it, it, because they were trying to make dates that were set by a project manager that said, we will be done by this date. And I don't care what you're telling me about how long it will take you, just work harder. And now think about how much uh, I just heard they, they're basically going right back to the well, and now the death march will continue probably late into December. So, um. so we haven't really had a solid <laughs> retrospective to determine what contributing factors might be. They did actually have a retrospective. <laughs> it was it was managers only for a full week. Oh. No one oh. actually involved in the incident was allowed in the room. Those managers working those late hours because they had time to sit around and talk about this. <laughs> Well, just it just goes to show. I mean, yeah, big companies sometimes make mistakes, even repeatedly. Um, we talked a little bit about the difference between first and, and second stories, and you really liked you liked that. Um, what's what's what were we talking about when we mentioned talk about a second story? Well, it's the the asking another why and digging a little deeper to understand the context in which a particular incident happened, and it seems like that's the very language we need to be able to talk to our own management about not stopping with human error. If you're logging your retrospective root cause human error, we might be missing the point of the other learnings that we can gain from this retrospective. And so we need to ask a few more questions and about what's underneath that to really get there. And so I think that's the very language that very concisely states we need to dig deeper. This isn't good enough. No, no, you, you had originally added it to our slides. What was your motivation for doing so? I thought it was interesting. We, we talked about Sidney Decker and the whole bad apple theory. Yeah. And I've had a couple of very top-down command and control type managers, and it was right away like, who did this? Bruce? Get Bruce in here. And, I mean, it is excruciating. That, he, that they get called in, to, in front of the principal and lectured for half an hour to be more careful. Which is just demotivating to everybody. And then when you, when you start getting that, that, oh, well, we, it's human error, just give me some names, then your metrics might start changing and it doesn't show human error. It, we just might not be reporting what's really happening anymore because we're too afraid to say anything. Because it's going to result in another lecture or another reprimand another firing that never really helps the team and you don't get the the time 
to even go and solve the thing that originally happened. We just run into another issue that might cause downtime again. Yeah, and, and we, I love that Westrom study that's mentioned in, in the book, um, um, Accelerate. But it talks about pathological organizations, and it's all about blaming the messenger, shooting the messenger. You know, how do we handle outages? So like that manager I mentioned, he, he said, he honestly thought telling people to be more careful will make the problem go away. Oh, yeah. Much like just telling people when they're really upset to calm down. Have you right. ever actually heard of that working? <laughs> Definitely doesn't work with my wife. <laughs> I can tell you that much. <laughs> you need to calm down. <laughs> or even with my kids. It never seems to have the desired effect I think it's going to have. It really does not. Exactly. That's those are the, that honest communication uh, flow again. Um, but yeah. it, I, I thought that was an interesting topic about like digging a little deeper to the second story. Instead of saying, you know, what people should have done, which is satisfying, it may help us deflect blame. It doesn't explain really why it made sense for them to do what they did at that time. So... You know, if an organization is more learning focused instead of blame focused, right. it, it seeks out vulnerabilities. It tries to get better instead of blaming the person. It says, how did we let this person down? How could we provide that that person next time better guardrails, more safety? And if you come with that assumption that that that's definitely, you know, outages are going to happen and we have psychological safety within our organization. Now we start shifting to rewarding. Wow, that was some really good information that you guys have figured out about our system and some really excellent suggestions for change or a new innovative way of recovering a system faster. I mean, I don't, I don't think a lot of people have really thought through a DR plan of what happens if all of your instances within your cloud provider gets deleted, but that one very rare thing happens. Now we could have said, hey, it wasn't really related to us. Maybe we shouldn't have a retrospective, but when we go back, okay, so this thing happened, let's just retrospect on having to rebuild a production environment that we never thought it would entirely go down. And we we built a whole production system in a matter of 12 hours on a Saturday for with the people that were on call and they didn't have to bring in a lot of extra resources. Now there's a lot of anger at our cloud service provider for that happening, but it's also a way to celebrate. Man, that's really cool. I can't believe you guys got that thing back up in 12 hours. <laughs> that's really awesome. <laughs> so we, we talked about how a good a good retrospective, a good postmortem report, there's at least one action item. And we also want to make sure it's available like in a knowledge base or a tool like uh, Morg, for example, something that, that Google swears by. Um, but you just mentioned there, beyond that, like actually making that information usable, like with a game day. Can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Uh, one of, <laughs> being a cloud SRE manager, you'll get the security operations type architect give you a call. Jane, you're going to pretend that there's an outage. You don't get to talk to anybody about this. You will go in, just like this one incident name, and delete everything in your CICD pipeline and see if all of our on-call processes work the way that we think that they should, and it would get rebuilt. It's like, really? He's like, yep, go. Like, oh, I was going to eat lunch. Nope, go. <laughs> 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 and it is terrifying and satisfying 
to right click and delete all of them. <laughs> and, 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 and then and you've done this. Happens. Yes. <laughs> so you've done this like with production systems. Yeah. And and so, you know, we have the theory of the chaos monkey, which right. ironically me and a few other of us operational engineers thought that we were spending too much and that we could randomly delete things and nobody would really know because most of the things weren't actually being used and so we'd get away with it and our bill would go down and it would be personally satisfying. The problem comes in is when you delete things and now everybody has blamed you for randomly deleting things. <laughs> Even though we had a specific objective, not necessarily a good way to communicate or see what was actually being used as part of a system. And so now we, we, we take that and put it into our production systems of, okay, every once in a while, just go randomly delete things and see how the system responds. Because it's both good for um, checking out robustness of production, but it's also a confidence builder in the system that we built that it can still function at a service level, even if some of the components aren't necessarily there. And I, I think most of the companies that you and I work for, they're not there yet. Correct. Like the idea of loosing like a, you know, Simeon army or a chaos monkey, you know, the whacking production systems is just too scary. In, in fact, at my current company, Jane, you're talking crazy talk. Nobody does that. Well, right. actually, I've done that. No, that was different. That was an innovation company. We have this particular capability. We don't do that. Like, uh-huh. That <laughs> sounds like bimodal IT. <laughs> <laughs> Another concept I hate. No, no, that's an innovative company. They're they're web web native. We're not that way. It's, it's stability is, is king it's here. It's different. But how can you prove if you're highly reliable unless you do something like that? Well, that also assumes that we've spent some time thinking about how to be highly re reliable rather than just don't touch anything. Mm -hmm. Don't touch anything is not the way to be <laughs> highly reliable. <laughs> Jenga. It's like Jenga, right? <laughs> don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't patch it. Ignore it. <laughs> it won't eat us. Right. <laughs> uh, it's really funny. <laughs> it, it, it's like the organizational equivalent, though, of holding your breath when you're trying to remove a Jenga piece very slowly. Mm. At some point, <laughs> that's not sustainable for an entire organization. I do feel like, and that's kind of where some of the books and the thinking that we had back, like, mid part of the 2005 or so, it hasn't really translated well to enterprises because of the vast number of legacy systems that are really poorly understood. I mean, some of them you truly, you know, it's it's very hard to it's very hard to keep them up and running when well, it's especially so especially the ones that have been there for 30 years. Right, and all but, the engineers have moved on, and it's not documented, and it's creaky, and it's and, not packed. And but we don't touch it. Right. <laughs> If it's not broken, don't touch it. <laughs> Might that brings you know the technical debt discussion to light, right? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and we could talk about like refactoring legacy systems. I love Michael Feather's book on that, and, and there's a few others. Um, it, it's I, I used to have an engineer that um, was working for me, and he got he was a, a legacy programmer, and and he got very upset with me when I used to say that you know legacy legacy code is untested code. But it's true, you know, and that's the reason why his deployments were breaking half the time. 
Hmm. But if the answer is deploy less or package all of your deployments so that you reduce your exposure of breaking them, that's that's the right answer, right? It's a good question. No, it's a really good no. question. I mean, I mean, <laughs> uh, let's say that let's say that I'm deploying 10,000 times a day. Does that mean I'm successful? Did the system break and are you delivering the outcome in which you intended? So I think what you're trying to tell me, if I'm following you here, Jane, um, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm following you, you are telling me that that the big tsunami releases where we do a, a release every three months and we do a war room over a weekend and we bring down the old system and stand up the new one and cross our fingers and hope all the subsidiary systems are working. Are you saying that's an anti-pattern? Uh, a little bit. And <laughs> we're not really focused on uh, what would we do for small changes and having maybe our framework for how we're doing our deployments fall back if there's an issue for us automatically? If we have to come up with a plan to do a failover in the event something goes wrong, but we don't think it will for this software upgrade or release, we might be doing it wrong. Mm. That's interesting. Can you tell I've, I've transitioned the waterfall mindset into something significantly more agile and bite-sized yeah yeah i <laughs> truly it's it's funny i used to you know as a dev team manager i was i was always thinking well i've you know my my i released every two weeks but that wasn't my release cycle my release cycle to production was like once every couple months right because we were we were hamstrung by you know, slow provisioned infrastructure. I know it's something you don't know anything about, but uh, in, you know, in, in a creaky test layer and, and the fact that our op operations and monitoring was handled by a different team with different priorities. It killed us. Mm. So it so seems like, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It's we, we mentioned about game days and it, it's funny because there's a, a misconception out there that only large companies need to do that. Um, but I, I talked to one, Ryan Cummingdeer from Five Talent here in Bend, Oregon. And he said, Dave, we, we do this all the time. It's it's a standard part of our rollouts. We we walk around and we literally start whacking, you know, these systems in test and making sure that everything is stood up properly and that we can reprovision at, at you know, push button. Mm -hmm. So even though hit Ryan's, this company, Five Talents, is not a thousand person company, they still do game days. And he says, my engineers love it. They love it. It's the only way we know that this system is really bulletproof. And we always learn things. He well, and you we, have more yeah, confidence. Two weeks to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of these game day activities, I mean, we don't, you don't have to necessarily uh, do this live on production systems. Google, for example, they, they, they just have it like on a sheet of paper and they, they walk uh, someone who was involved in the incident writes it up as a scenario and they walk operations and uh, first responders through it um, like a paper like a desktop um, dungeons and dragons type activity they call it a wheel of, of misfortune <laughs> <laughs> and that That's way awesome. that way it, the post-mortem process is not just another boring tedious meeting with no direct outputs or impact on the system yeah yeah we had that one guy in the in the audience and he said how do you get people to come 
It's like, whoa, <laughs> what are you doing to them in those retrospectives that they don't want to come? I guarantee you, if it's if it's a, a healthy discussion and there's usable action items, you're going to have a full house. And that people are excited to learn exactly what happened. Because they may even show specifically for, ooh, I want to see who the problem was. Even if it gets turned into, well, that was a really epic situation. I can't believe you guys did that. <laughs> you got out of that situation. Yeah, it's funny. Google used to, um, they used to circulate a newsletter that they'd actually put in the bathrooms that people would read about, like the latest incident and how, you know, how it was happening. Anything to get people to read those reports, you know, just kind of yeah. spread information. So well, I, uh, go ahead. I, re I remember first doing operations for the first time and they're like, you know, Jane, we need a plan. We need a playbook. We need to understand this. And I was like, I think we should duplicate it. And then I need to start turning things off or causing and introducing problems. Because when I, you know, do some black box testing, if you like, came from a QA uh, place, you know, starting my career, if I can black box test this and see what the different errors look like, now I can write a better playbook for you to, if you see this type of problem, it's likely in this area. And so it's even worth it just to do it on a test system so that you can get some knowledge and where you might want to change things in the future. But it's hard to be put on operational duty for the first time as, from a software engineering standpoint. You're like, I, I need something to black box test. Like, just just give it to me and let me play. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that, that you and I kind of both felt the same that uh, – instead of trying to run from our mistakes, you know, we, you have to start with acknowledging them and saying, you know, I talk about them and, you know, you've, you've given talks recently in Seattle and elsewhere on some of the outages you've been through so that, you know, hopefully we can share this. It's uh, success actually comes from failure. Right. Absolutely. And what we can learn from failure and how to apply some of the same learnings or even how to learn related to other failures that have happened. Absolutely. Right. right. So I used to always tell my team, you know, I, I want mistakes, you know, just new and interesting ones. <laughs> Not the same old boring mistakes. Hmm. You said you said in your bio, um, you know, the, the times that I you know, the accolades that I consider failures are at times I've run in the same situation and didn't change my behavior. You know, yeah, I always absolutely. try to find new ways to fail. I, I think that's great. Well, and there's a, so, and every time I say that, I always picture uh, a couple of incidents, but one of them is when we were um, supporting a system that had a wild card that needed to be replaced every year. Um, and it's about five minutes worth of work and it's easy to acquire and drop in the right place and we move on with our life. And because it's only like five minutes worth of work and it would have been like maybe a half hour <laughs> or a day to automate it. Um, it just didn't seem like it was worth the ROI for, you know, it would take years to get to the point where that made sense. Right. So I'll just put it on my calendar. We'll put it in the team backlog with a date on it. It'll get done. It's not a big deal for um, it to cause an outage because we didn't do it. And it took a minute, a few minutes, unfortunately, to figure out, oh, we just didn't have the right, we didn't replace the wild card, it expired. 
and kind of sort of have a retrospective. Yeah, we should probably just not do that. We should really automate it at this time. But, you know, in the throes of all of the other exciting stuff that happens, it gets deprioritized. It's not really that interesting and it's more work than really makes sense. We'll make sure we're going to put it on our calendar. It'll get done. <laughs> and the next year, the exact same story. And the next year, we'll probably do the same thing. The same thing. Step on the rake again at once every year. Oh, the site's down. Oh, damn it, the certificates. Right. <laughs> I had that exact same story. It was like working with a time bomb. Happened in May every year. <laughs> and so it may it may not be worth, in terms of just time, your ROI to automate that. Right. It might just be worth it in risk of system downtime and expecting a team of people to remember a five-minute task that needs to happen year after year after year. I mean, at a minimum, you can put some monitoring on it and make the person who's on call like 30 days out even deal with it before it causes downtime that you now have to go and report on. So this is this is just one of those, a blameless postmortem is something that everyone seems to kind of ignore or put off for higher priority things, <clears throat> excuse me. But I think you and I both feel that this is the way you create a safer organization. You know, a postmortem process that encourages sharing information and kind of understanding better the context. You know, how can we better protect our people versus naming, shaming, and blaming? Mm, yeah. Is there kind of a, a takeaway message you have for our literally dozens of, of listeners? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's what you do with that feeling when you personally blame yourself for not doing something. You were the person that was supposed to handle operational duties that week and didn't replace the certificate. And now your team has to put up a new counter for how many days since the last incident. Um, you take that feeling and and really be gentle with other people. Mm-hmm because you, you know you need to be gentler with yourself and you'd want that same safety to be able to talk about it and what to do differently. And so go create that for other people. I like that. That's really very kind. Well, thank you very much, Jan. I really enjoyed this discussion. I think this was just great. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.